So our guest today is my dear friend, Eric Posner. He knows, needs no introduction, especially to the students in my contracts class, because one of their books is by Eric. And in fact, it's Eric's book that got me thinking about teaching contract law. I suspect uh, much to the dismay of uh, many sets of Duke Law students, but all blame goes to Eric. But the other reason why I'm so delighted that we were able to persuade, coerce, arm twist Eric into talking to us today is that he may be the only person in the world whose research intersects a set of areas that are important for what we want to ask him about today. And those areas are contract law, international law, and international finance. And Eric has done pathbreaking work, uh, to put it mildly, in each of those areas. But my first question is, I think, really simple. And it is has to do with the great interest that lawyers and law firms have been showing over the last few months in the force majeure concept. I, I can't even say it right. I hate it when lawyers use fancy uh, French or Latin terms. I can't even tell what this is, but uh, I think it's French. And by my estimation, there are over a hundred memos from fancy law firms out there about force majeure. And I can't understand why? It, it seems like this is just some version of impossibility, impracticability, frustration, all packed into one. And it's a concept that we don't even have in Anglo-American law. So, Eric? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, we do have it in Anglo-American law because uh, contracts, uh, American contracts, British contracts, frequently contain force majeure clauses and then American courts uh, have to interpret them. And there's a, there's a kind of a jurisprudence that's arisen around the meaning of a force majeure clause. Force majeure clauses are also very common because in US law, the impossibility and impracticability doctrine and the related frustration doctrine are applied very rarely under very narrow conditions. So firms don't want to you know, take the risk that, well, I should say not only narrowly, but maybe sometimes unpredictability. So the, the reason why firms use force majeure clauses is that they, they want to set out the conditions under which a contractual obligation will be suspended or terminated, rather than just rely on, on courts using these quite vague, these quite vague um, doctrines. So Eric, this, but, uh, this all sounds, this all sounds great and very fancy and official. But I, it, for the life of me, I looked at some of these force majeure clauses and they say stuff like if there's an act of God or there's a war or, you know, I was looking for pandemic, they usually don't say pandemic, then you don't have to perform. That doesn't sound like it gives anybody any uncertainty. I mean, what the hell is an act of God? I mean, either everything is an act of God, if you believe in God, or if you don't believe in God, nothing's an act of God. This sounds like this sounds like the kind of contract term that nobody should enforce and shouldn't give anybody any confidence. Force majeure clauses are a little paradoxical because they usually consist both of very narrow, uh, relatively well-specified 
conditions and very broad language. An act of God, of course, isn't meant literally. It really just means events or conditions that are, that are not the result of the action of a particular party. So a force majeure clause might refer explicitly to a war, or it might not, but still have the term act of God. A court would normally interpret a war to be an act of God because, you know, when you're talking about a normal supplier and buyer, neither of them are responsible for the, for the war. And so there's at least an argument then that the existence of the war would excuse one or the other uh, uh, party from its obligations. Um, another point that's very important is that force majeure clauses are, are not are often you know drafted in a bespoke way. They're not always boilerplate. They sometimes are boilerplate, but often parties write their own force majeure clauses, and often the content of the force majeure clause will depend on um, the nature of the transaction and the location of the transaction. So if you have contracts in a place like Louisiana, there might be a force majeure clause that explicitly mentions hurricanes and flooding, and force majeure clauses drafted for contracts that take place in other uh, parts of the country may omit uh, those, those specific terms. You know, there are also, uh, you know, there, there's an endless amount of variation in force majeure clauses that relate to the type of contract, but you know, just to give you a couple examples, th there are often contracts where, you know, you hire somebody to transport your oil from Saudi Arabia to Texas, and the types of events that could arise through this passage across the sea uh, may be quite different from the types of reasons why, let's say, a lease of um, uh, some space in a mall for a restaurant uh, might break down. So, so there are very different force majeure clauses. Now, the, the jurisprudence, you know, is, is not very interesting because once the once the clause is in the contract and the dispute arises, it's just a matter of interpretation. As a general matter, you know, it's hard to generalize because every clause is different or most clauses are different, and they're always interpreted in light of the actual events that gave rise to the dispute, and they're always different as well. What I will say, though, is that a force majeure clause is never a get-out-of-jail-free clause. Courts tend to interpret even the broad language fair, fairly narrowly. And um, they impose all kinds of other conditions. To give you one example, you know, typically uh, uh, there's a question of whether the force majeure event really renders the contract you know, kind of completely useless or whether it just might be a justification for delay, uh, let's say, the delivery is late, which is a breach of contract, but it's late only by a month. And the party that was supposed to deliver the products took, um, you know, reasonable efforts to do it as quickly as possible after the hurricane or whatever passed. Um, so, you know, courts will tend to, to uh, suspend an obligation rather than terminate an obligation if they, if they can. But, you know, that, that's, these are complicated questions. You know, you ask about why uh, hundreds of law firms have been writing about force majeure. The answer, obviously, is that the COVID-19 pandemic and the accompanying government shutdowns really were events out of the control of most people and companies. Some companies could, you know, could, could take mitigation efforts and so forth, but 
this was a massive, a massive interference with business operations for which there's really no precedent, I think. Certainly not even a war, at least in American history, has caused as much disruption uh, to business. And in a huge number of these contracts, there are actually force majeure clauses. So people want to know a force majeure clause, if it doesn't specifically refer to a pandemic, will the general language in the clause nonetheless allow me to suspend or terminate my obligations? And so, and so I wonder whether um, loan contracts are just different. I mean, I, like Me Too, I've seen a bunch of these memos. I, I don't know what Me Too has seen, but the ones that I've seen have been all been dealing with commercial contracts, not, not loans. And the way I've always sort of simplistically understood force majeure clauses is, you know, they're interpreted so that the event has to be genuinely outside the control of the the obligor, and you know, COVID nineteen obviously would would qualify. But my the way I always have thought about the way courts go about impracticability and related doctrines in the lending context is they just assume investors don't take on a, any payment related risk at all, basically, and so those defenses are not available. Is that is that consistent with your understanding, Eric, or am I being Am I being too simplistic here? Uh, that's my understanding as well. You know, I, I've never seen a contract, let's say a contract for a loan that says um, a force majeure event would excuse repayment. You know, you can always write a contract like that, you know, explicitly. You could say, you know, you could write an option contract or, you know, equity can serve this purpose. And you can say that if the person who receives the capital can't pay it back, then he or she doesn't have to, and, and that's the end, right? Um, and, and people do write contracts like that, but they, they don't use the force majeure terminology, probably because they want to be more specific about what exactly would warrant a failure uh, to repay. A non-recourse loan is a bit like that as well. You, you know, you can design financial instruments however you want, and frequently somebody who invests money is willing to take the risk that uh, he's not repaid under certain conditions. But for a regular loan contract, you know, like if you borrow money to buy a house or you borrow money to start a, borrow money from a bank to start a business, I agree with you that first of all, there won't be a force majeure clause in the contract. And second of all, if you try to argue to a court that you're not required to repay because of the impossibility doctrine, uh, the argument would be rejected. And uh, I believe the reason for that is that the, uh, the, the, you know, the remedy, if, if you can't pay, is, is bankruptcy. Uh, there is a sense in which, you know, you are excused from your payment if you, if you enter bankruptcy, and we're talking about municipal law at the moment. So uh, it's not like uh, you, you, you're, you're out of luck com completely, but it does mean that a whole process comes into play that ensures that if you have some money left or some assets left, they'll be shared uh, fairly among the different creditors. And so in our context, in the, in the absence of bankruptcy, courts should be liberally applying all of these excuse doctrines, right, to, to replicate things like the, the automatic stay and uh, prevent creditors from getting their disproportionate share of the pie. That's what I want to take away from that. I, I, I suspect you're going to tell me I'm reading too much into the last part of what you said. 
No, I mean, I don't, not in the absence of bankruptcy, only if the debtor actually files for bankruptcy. But in the absence, I mean, let's just take a concrete example. Suppose I borrow money to buy a house, the pandemic strikes and I lose my job or I become ill. Um, and so I, 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 I don't have money to make the, the repayment. So the, let's suppose the, the lender sues me for breach of contract and wants to foreclose on my house. And I say, impossibility, you know, I, I literally didn't have the money to pay. I've never seen a court accept that argument. There are actually some cases like that um, after the financial crisis of 2008. And in the commercial context, there were some commercial entities that tried to get out of their loans by making that type of argument. And the court just said, you know, look, first of all, you shouldn't, maybe you shouldn't have borrowed the money. It was dumb. And you, know, you have other assets. You could sell your other assets and raise money that way. You could go to the capital market and borrow more money and use that money to repay the loan that's uh, become due. You know, there are all kinds of things that you can do. And if you, you're literally just, you know, have no assets left, that, then you file for bankruptcy, which is a statutory scheme that's set up for just uh, this situation. So there doesn't really seem to be um, a role for the impossibility and impracticability doctrines in this setting. Of course, if the loan contract did have some kind of clause, you know, akin to a force majeure clause that allowed the debtor, for example, to delay payments, if some kind of emergency strikes, you know, that would be fine. Then the court would enforce it. And, you know, informally creditors do that, you know, they, they do that all the time. They'll renegotiate loans, they'll, they'll give uh, borrowers some breathing room. That may make business sense. But I think the legal options of, of the debtor are limited. Eric, one, one last uh, question before we take our break uh, to go take us away from the depressing scenario that you sketched of us losing our jobs and not being able to pay our mortgage payments. And, oh, okay, let's, let's go back to those clauses that you described. And clearly you've looked at a lot more clauses than I have. And let's suspend reality in terms of thinking that these clauses all vary in important ways and think, taking just two sets of the contracts. One set has the general act of God, war, and similar things. And the other set has act of God, war, pandemic, and similar uh, types. Does that, I, I'm not sure from reading these memos, which one, which type of clause is better? Well, the pen, the, the clause In the, the COVID-19 context, sorry. Well, the, the clause with the pandemic is definitely better, but but it, but it may not get you to um, you know where you want to be. It, it may not ultimately excuse you because, as I mentioned before, the courts interpret these clauses pretty narrowly, and you know they want to be persuaded that when you wrote "pandemic" in, into the clause, you, you you really meant um, the type of setting that um, you know that that is currently under dispute. I, I can give you a, 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 a simple example just to show you what I mean. You know, suppose um, suppose you know you're you're uh, you have a contract with your internet service provider, and you know you're paying money to them, and you have some kind of subscription, and there's a force majeure clause in it that includes the pandemic language, and I don't know a better deal comes along, so you want to say I want to get out of this contract, and because of the 
force majeure clause with the pandemic term I'm entitled to. There's a pandemic going on after. Now, the court would rule against you because the mere fact that the word pandemic is mentioned is not sufficient to excuse you from your obligation. You also have to show that the pandemic actually makes it impossible for you, you know, it has a to, to, to perform, that it sort of physically prevents you from performing. And, and that's not the case when we're talking about uh, ISP subscription. You know, by contrast, if you, um, you know, I don't know, you're, you're, you have a contract to deliver food to restaurants and a government order, you know, literally says it's illegal to go into those restaurants um, and there's a force majeure clause with, with the term pandemic, then, then you may well be able to es escape your obligation. Um, so, so that's what, now, if, if the force majeure clause doesn't say pandemic at all, I, I think you're probably out of luck. I mean, not necessarily, of course, but the thing is, there have been a number of pandemics over the last 20 years, and so this is the way courts think. They say, well, there have been pandemics, they've caused disruption, people should know about them, and people have put pandemic terms in their force majeure clauses. So if I have a clause in front of me which does not include that term, that must mean that they want the contract to be performed even if uh, there's, there's a pandemic. So they're, they're probably not gonna draw on general language like act of God to excuse a party from performing in those circumstances. All right, thank you, Eric. We should take a little break now and then we'll move to the next set of questions which are nearer and dearer to my heart. Okay, we're back and this second half gets to the question that I really wanted Eric to come here to talk about. And it builds on, I, I'm, I'm gonna pronounce this wrong. I've been told by Mark and Eric that I cannot pronounce the French R correctly. So, <laughs> fausse majeure, uh, I hope that sounds right. I, I know it doesn't. But my understanding, Eric, is that this fausse majeure has evolved in the international law context into the doctrine of necessity, or sometimes called uh, economic necessity. And this doctrine has the potential to yield relief in the cases that I care about the most, uh, involving sovereign debtors who, as a result of the pandemic, cannot pay their debts. Now, as I understand the doctrine, it says a couple of things. One, that uh, you can use this doctrine only in very narrow circumstances where the harm to your population would be greater than the harm to the counterparty from violating your contract with them. So presumably here, the counterparties are some hedge funds and their mansions in Connecticut, uh, whereas the people are the ones suffering from COVID-19. So seems applicable here. And also you must not have been at fault in uh, causing the condition of economic necessity. It seems like most uh, poor developing countries, they didn't have anything to do with causing the pandemic. Uh, yet, I'm not so sure this uh, doctrine will apply to give countries the relief that I would like them to have. So I I'd like you 
to help us on one, is this an evolution of force majeure? And two, do you think it has any use in the current context? So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that the necessity doctrine is, you know, evolved out of force majeure. They're more like parallel doctrines that evolved in parallel. The necessity doctrine goes back many hundreds of years and reflects a general idea that if a state has an obligation, you, you can't really expect it to um, comply with that obligation if, as a consequence, it, you know, self-destructs or causes massive famine and, and chaos. Obviously, the, the two doctrines are, are similar, but the, the, the state system is, is different from municipal law, and it's probably more helpful to, to think of them um, separately. Now, the necessity doctrine in international law is, is a general doctrine, so a state can always invoke it. I think it's, it's been invoked, for example, in trade disputes before. It's, it's been invoked in a, a number of, of contexts. You know, the nature of international law is often very difficult to describe because typically what happens is the state might invoke this doctrine Another state might acknowledge that the doctrine exists, but ultimately they just negotiate some kind of settlement. And so it's often quite unclear what the, contour, what the contours of these doctrines are and you know, what the remedies are if, if you use them. There's a, um, a document called the, the draft. It's a, it's a draft document of state responsibility, which has some authority in international law, but people disagree about whether the clauses in it that deal with necessity are an accurate uh, description of international law or not. So, you know, we're in a very kind of hazy, uh, hazy uh, setting when we talk about this. Okay, all that said, to get, get to your question, let's suppose a country uh, defaults on, on bonds that it's issued. Now, if the holders of the bonds bring a lawsuit, you know, the, typically the way this works, as you know, is they're not suing under, under international law. They're, they're suing under the relevant domestic law, which might be the domestic law of the country that issued the bonds, or it could be New York law or English law. And, you know, they'll bring their lawsuit in, in a relevant court. And the, the, the doctrine of necessity, you know, the international law doctrine of necessity isn't necessarily going to be relevant, at least in American law. I, I don't see, you know, wh why it would come up normally. The, the real question would simply be whether the state has defaulted on its bonds, and if it has, it would be liable for damages, and, and, and that would be the end of the, of the discussion. Um, I suppose a state could make an argument in the American court under the doctrine of necessity that it is not required to pay its bonds, or more plausibly, that it can delay payment or something like that. I, I don't know how an American court would uh, respond to, to that argument. I suspect uh, an American court would be skeptical. Uh, I, I don't know, you know what other courts in other countries might, might say to that type, type of argument. Now, of course, um, the state might just not 
actually pay the bonds, even though it's lost a case. And then, um, you know, the bondholders, they can put pressure on the state in various ways, as we've seen in recent years. But they could also try to make this uh, an international law dispute. The bondholders could go to a government, let's say the U.S. government, and say, you know, this other country hasn't paid us. That's a violation of international law. Do something about it. And the government could try to do something about it. It could, it could bring a claim uh, against the defaulting state and say, you're, you're violating international law because you made a promise and you've broken your promise. And at that point, that state might, might invoke the necessity doctrine. And again, you know, it's a little hard to predict what would happen. You know, the, the, the state that's making the claim might accept it or might not. You know, it would probably depend heavily on the facts. Um, it, the, the invocation of the necessity doctrine might help shape uh, some kind of settlement or renegotiation. You know, it, it's a little hard to know. Let me make a last point, which you say, you know, there's sort of certain requirements for the necessity doctrine. I mean, to, again, because there's, there, there are not all really cases and things that one can rely on the way one wants to when doing normal legal analysis. A lot of this is speculative, but, but it's also common sense to some extent. So if you have a state, as you say, that is unable to pay its debts because a pandemic has struck and, you know, its economy has been shut down, uh, that's, you know, there, there's a pretty good necessity argument, I suppose. Um, and one could imagine other states accepting it. But sometimes uh, maybe the argument will be less plausible. Maybe the uh, state that's trying to enforce the claim will say, look, you know, just raise money from someone else, pay off this debt, and uh, we'll take it from here. There's no reason why you should be able to invoke the necessity doctrine. And uh, that might be a possible response as well. And so part of what I, I hear you saying is the, the reminding us that this is a doctrine that excuses non-performance of an international obligation, and we're not dealing with international obligations here. But in addition, the kind of skeptical part of me wonders whether it even matters whether we were to incorporate necessity into whatever the relevant law would be, New York law, English law, what have you. Does it add anything to the excuse doctrines that we've already talked about, which for the reasons we talked about in the first half, don't really help anyway? Is there a reason to think that necessity, if it applied, would do any work that would be beneficial to a sovereign borrower? Yeah, you know, it's hard to say. I guess I am skeptical that it would make much of a difference. You know, what's what's usually going on in these cases is that a country a country wants to renegotiate with its creditors, believing that if it does so, that will make it easier for the country to borrow in the future. And uh, and so, you know, the argument they make has to to, to some extent be generally persuasive to, to everybody. So Eric, um, let, me, let, me ask, let me interrupt and ask you mm-hmm. to come back to what you said in the first half and also to, to quash Marx uh, agreeing with you in terms of the skepticism. So in, in the first half of our podcast, you had said, well, you know, in a loan contract, you have bankruptcy. You can just go to bankruptcy and that'll give you relief. So now we've given you the context where there is no bankruptcy. So shouldn't we just, shouldn't we be more sympathetic? And, and second, 
isn't there an argument that uh, the necessity doctrine can be seen as uh, an implied term when it comes to sovereigns engaging in transactions. And even though the transaction is with individual investors under municipal law, aren't there many international law doctrines that sort of uh, sneak into even municipal concepts? For example, I mean, the very idea of a state, you can't have a state or a sovereign without some international law mumbo jumbo about you know what is a state. So if you're gonna let in some stuff, about international law, why, why not this doctrine that, that, that does nothing but help in the right circumstances? Well, I, you know, there's a lot going on there in those questions. States have sovereign immunity, which they can always assert under domestic law or international law. So there is a sense in which if a state wants to win on these cases, it can. It doesn't, it doesn't need these doctrines. I think part of what's going on is that we're trying to figure out what, you know, what's the right regime. And there's a lot of scholarship that suggests that, you know, what is common sense, that often countries or individuals, whoever, will want to enter into loan contracts that have, that are contingent, you know, that are contingent on the good times continuing. And if they don't, then it may be the case that the parties should share the loss, and that itself will be reflected in, in the interest rate. Um, now, you can always write contracts that say that explicitly, but sometimes you can't. And if you don't, there's an argument that the law should, as you put it, put in an implied term of some sort, which, which could be a way of understanding the necessity doctrine. There, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct that there's no international bankruptcy system, but you know, there, there's a certain, you know, you've got to keep in mind that when companies or people are thinking about lending money to a country, in a sense, they don't care whether the country fails to repay because it just refuses to, because it's able to file for bankruptcy under international law, because it's able to invoke the necessity doctrine. You know, it just doesn't matter that the company hasn't repaid and as a result, creditors are going to be reluctant to uh, lend to the company in, in the country in the future, or will do so only at very high interest rates, which can be very damaging to that country. So when we're thinking about, let's say, international bankruptcy, of course, there have been proposals for that before. What we're really trying to do is not, well, you know, what's really the focus is in those situations where a country can't repay its debts, trying to find a good sort of regular way to divide the losses among the creditors in a way you know, that makes, makes sense. Um, I'm not sure the necessity doctrine will do that. And, and, and I don't think that's what international bankruptcy is, is, is really about, uh, you know, just kind of releasing a, 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 a country because it's having a hard time. But I do think it makes sense for creditors to renegotiate debt with, with countries when the countries genuinely are unable to pay, even if it's just a kind of a political problem, and that you want some kind of system to do that. And that the problem we currently have is that since there's no system, you just have a bunch of people screaming at each other and very difficult 
renegotiations that can go on for years and cause harm to the country uh, in the meantime. If you have a necessity rule that were, was widely recognized, yeah, it's possible that that could make things easier. Uh, the, the, the obvious risk on the other side is that countries, especially poorly led countries, might invoke it opportunistically and in that way damage the, the, uh, the credibility of the country and make it more difficult for it to borrow uh, in, in the future. And I think, I mean, Mitu's question is a good one, but to my mind, it's not even a question about necessity. We could say that in the absence of bankruptcy, courts ought to be willing to imply these kinds of terms into contracts, and they should do it whenever we think a, a breathing spell would be in the best interests of creditors collectively, because that's when, you know, if we had asked them at the time of the contract, that's when they would have agreed to to give the sovereign a bit of relief. But that's the work that impracticability already does to my mind. And we don't need the doctrine of necessity to do that work. The problem is not the absence of this creature of international law. The problem is that courts just aren't willing to imply any kind of term into lending contracts. Um, not even so much a question as a response, I guess, to me too, but, um, is there anything that necessity does that impracticability doesn't already do, which in this case happens to be nothing, but, you know. Well, I mean, let, let me, let me, you know, give you two thoughts about that. The, the first is when you talk, when you, when both of you talk about implying terms, that suggests that the contract parties can contract around the implied terms. And so if courts, you know, started saying over and over again, there's a necessity defense when a country defaults on its loans, the question to ask is whether in the next round of financing, the investors are gonna insist on clauses that say the necessity defense doesn't imply. Uh, if that happens, then you know, we're just wasting our time. And I suspect that's, what's, that's what would happen. Although maybe me too, you could correct me since you've read thousands of these bonds. But you know, it's not like anyway, countries have to wait for a court even to say that. If they thought it was in everybody's mutual interest to give uh, countries breathing room or even uh, release them from their debts under certain circumstances, they would write that into their contract. Uh, on, on your second question, uh, Mark, the, you know, I, I'm kind of a skeptic about legal doctrine. I, I, I mean, I think it's important in the sense that you, you know, either there is a doctrine that will excuse you from your obligation, either temporarily or permanently, or there isn't. I'm not sure it matters whether it's called impossibility or necessity or anyone, you know, or, or some other term. You know, the, the, the question is, under what conditions would the, uh, the borrower in this case be able to invoke, invoke the doctrine? And, uh, you know, we could, we could have a conversation about that. Uh, I think whichever doctrine you use, any reasonable court would insist that the failure to pay is not traceable to some opportunistic act of the debtor, and other, you know, otherwise that just defeats the point. A lot of these doctrines talk about unforeseeable events, and, and that makes a certain amount of sense as well, because 
if the event that prevents the, the, the country from repaying is something that is easily foreseen, sort of routine type of thing, like an economic downturn, then uh, you, know, you can write that into the contract. And if you don't, presumably, you don't want that to excuse a failure to repay. Um, I imagine also that no court would excuse repayment altogether. It may, it may for example, delay repayment, but uh, it's hard to see that they would ever ex excuse uh, repayment. And you know, part of this also is just when we look at what happens in reality, countries do excuse debts. They pay, you know, they they pay off old debts sometimes, and other times they persuade other countries to excuse the debts and, in effect, pay them, pay pay their pay the holders for them. I mean, this is all a part of international politics, and it's important for companies to be able to obtain a reputation for paying their debts. And if the courts were much more liberal about excusing countries, I, I, I'm not sure it would do them much good. You know, as always, it's, 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 hard, to, it's hard to know in the abstract. So Eric, thank you so much. You, you've been so generous with your time, but I, I'm going to abuse your generosity, even though I had intended for us to end here in asking you one teeny weeny last question. So here's the scenario. Let us say that a court in New York does accept the economic uh, necessity defense. Uh, and in fact, there is a case um, right now in federal court in New York where the opposition government in Venezuela that is the one recognized by the US uh, has raised the necessity defense and the judges has asked for extra briefing on this. I'm not sure whether it's just a delaying tactic, but they've asked for it. And that, that did bring up the question for me on the subject that I try to avoid getting into in my contracts class because I find utterly incomprehensible, which is the topic of damages. So let us say that the country delays payments of two coupons. For one year, they don't pay interest. And that delay actually improves their economic condition because they're able to use that money to pay for ventilators or vaccines, and then they start growing again, and they, they're able to pay the country. What would damages be? So in my very rudimentary understanding of damages, which I, I'll confess I don't understand, it seems like the creditors are not damaged at all. In fact, they've benefited by the country not paying. But I think Mark has told me many times that this is not how contract law damages operate. I hope you're telling me that Mark is wrong. Well, I do uh, not recognize this scenario. I just want that made clear. <laughs> so, so two points. So first of all, you know, if you're asking about international law, the, you know, the rules for remedies in international law are, are not well defined. They're, 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 it's not like domestic contract law where we have a bunch of rules. So, you know, there's a kind of a general principle that if one country hurts another, that the wrongdoing country owes compensation of some sort. But it's very, you know, you, you don't find dozens and dozens of cases describing, you know, what compensation means. 
but it sounds also like your question is really about uh, domestic uh, contract law. And what the way U.S. contract law works is that if a debtor doesn't, you know, pay or delays payment, the, um, the creditor is entitled to damages equal to the amount of money that would uh, that the creditor would have received if the if the debtor had paid as as it was supposed to. So the, the baseline is not, you know, if the debtor had gone bankrupt. The, the baseline is if the debtor had paid on time. And so if interest is delayed, an interest payment is delayed by a year, then it's just, you know, basically the, let's say if, if the interest rate is, let's say $100, the interest is $100 and it's paid a year later than it should have been, it's, it's basically the opportunity cost of that $100, which would probably be something like the treasury rate or something. So if I had had that $100, I could have invested it and earned whatever, you know, half a percent of interest. So I'd be entitled to 50 cents. And those would be my damages. Thank you so much. This, this you, has been incredibly fun. Thank you, Eric. My pleasure. Always nice talking to you.